0: Well, we are in the message and mission series as we consider gospel-shaped outreach to remind ourselves, encourage ourselves, uh, equip ourselves in certain ways to carry the good news of Jesus to those around us uh, as we've been called to do and commissioned to do. And so just kind of breaking that down over these, uh, I think, nine weeks. Um, Last week, Will did a great job of taking us back to 2 Kings, and showing us that picture of God's grace towards us in salvation, that unmerited, unearned salvation that God blesses us with in offering salvation, uh, and also how we are to be heralds or proclaimers of that good news to others. Um, That it wasn't just, we're here and there's not enough for anyone else. uh, First to the table, first come, first served, um, but there's enough, there's more room at the table. It's good news for everyone to hear. And so we have that message. And we're to proclaim that message. And so the question last week was, Who are we? Uh, And in Bible study, we dove deeper into that and talked about how we are a missionary family and how uh, being on mission, making disciples, is kind of the family business once you become part of God's family. And so every believer, not just the professionals, has been tasked with the Great Commission. Um, And so we looked at that in Bible study last week. Today, we'll look at who are we reaching? We're going back to the Old Testament. This time, way back to Genesis 3, all the way back to the Garden of Eden um, to see who needs to be reached and why. The question, who are we reaching? And so we'll be in Genesis chapter 3, um, almost the whole chapter, verses 1 through 21. This is what it says Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. This chapter is labeled The Fall in my translation, maybe in yours as well, as it describes the fall of man when sin entered the world. And the world has been broken and marked by sin ever since. That is why it's called capital T, capital F, The Fall. Humanity is plagued by sin, because we're all sinners. This is the first part of the answer to who we're reaching. We're reaching sinners. Uh, Adam and Eve broke the rule, right? God said, don't eat of this tree, don't even touch it, and they did. So, disobedience, There's almost this moment when he comes to them in the garden of, did you eat of the tree that you weren't supposed to, knowing that they did? Like when you catch your kid with, you know, chocolate around their mouth and say, did you eat some of that cake? No, but you know the answer. God knew the answer, right? He knew that they had eaten of the tree that they weren't supposed to eat. But he's having this conversation, this teachable moment, which was the fall of all mankind, where sin has entered the world disobedience, rebellion against what God has said and declared. This is good, everything's good, just don't do this. And that's what they ended up doing. Verse 6 describes how the love of the things of the world tempted Eve, and how she gave in to those temptations and ate, and then shared with Adam, who also ate. And in their sin, they became aware of their sin. And in their awareness of sin began the snowball of consequences. They feel shame, they try to cover themselves, they hide from God. When questioned by God, they blame someone else. Adam blames Eve, Eve blames the serpent. No one's taking responsibility for their own sin. Eventually, the the verses right after where I stopped, they are kicked out of the garden. Um, And so this just never ending stream of consequences because of their disobedience and their rebellion we, like Adam and Eve in sin, are all dead spiritually. We're dead in our sin. The New Testament describes sinners in this way. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 says, In Adam, everyone died. So there's a spiritual death when Adam and Eve break God's commandment and sin enters the world. Every human from that point on was born with a sinful, sinful nature separated from a holy God. We are imprinted with this mark of sin. This highlights kind of a sub-point here. If the first point is we're reaching sinners, the sub-point would be we're all sinners. And so there's kind of a duality to this to, to remind us that who are we reaching? We're reaching sinners, but not to get, get it twisted and think it's us, them, right? We were them apart from Christ. We are sinners. We are in the same spiritually dead state apart from Jesus that those who yet to believe are in right now. The Bible says all fall short of the glory of God and all we like sheep have gone astray. If we're in Christ, we're saved and dead to sin, but we all start as sinners dead in sin. This is what we need to remember when we're thinking about reaching others with the good news of Jesus. No unbeliever is in a worse place than we were apart from Jesus. And so to think that they don't deserve it, they're not good enough for the gospel, something like that, then we've lost sight of grace. We've lost sight of what Jesus has done for us. We've lost sight of what God has offered us. And we've lost sight of where we were spiritually apart from Jesus. So rewind a little bit because uh, morality is written on our hearts. Because it's written on our hearts, we know in our heart of hearts, like Adam and Eve, that we have messed up before God. Or even if we don't believe in God, we know that there is some form of oughtness that we have rebelled against, that we have not lined up with. Romans one 18 through 18-20 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. The Bible says we are without excuse. We know we've done wrong, and yet we suppress the truth, as we just read in Romans 1.18. Adam and Eve physically hid. <clears throat> they tried to escape the presence of God in the garden. We suppress the truth in other ways, instead of hiding physically. We know deep down that we've fallen short of some standard of perfection because we're hardwired with this idea of oughtness, this idea of morality. It is imprinted on us. But instead of running and hiding physically, we just turn from God, the things of God, the people of God, the word of God. We avoid him. It's this idea of if we don't see him or hear him or think about him, then we're okay, we don't have to deal with it. But who are we kidding, trying to hide from the God of the universe? I remember my niece, Grace, when she was like three years old or something, was playing hide and seek on a playground. And I think my parents have a picture of this, I should have uh, asked for that. Uh, And she crouched down behind um, a a tire swing and it was um, like a horizontal tire swing, it was flat, right? So she gets in the middle of it and crouches down. So it's blocking her eyes so if she turns in any direction, right? She just sees tire. Well, she assumed, because she couldn't see anyone, that no one could see her. But it's this hilarious picture of people playing hide-and-seek, searching for those who are hiding, and you can see her like just squatting. You can see her, little, her whole little body, and she's picking flowers or doing whatever, and, but she thinks, I'm good. I'm invisible to the world, because she can't see anything around her she thought she was safe, right? She thought she was out of sight. This is how Adam and Eve and we treat God sometimes, as if he doesn't already know every thought and intention of our hearts. Another way we suppress the truth is we often blame others instead of owning our sin, just like Adam and Eve. We blame our circumstances or the things done to us or the resources we do or don't have, and we point to the temptations around us like Adam and Eve did but we never stop to admit our selfishness. But the truth is, we are all sinners. Now, even if you reject the idea that you inherited some kind of corrupted nature from Adam, uh, okay, for the sake of argument, right, you started with a blank slate, okay? Now think about if you've ever done anything you should not have done, or if you've ever not done something you should have done. That's all it takes. That one act of disobedience to what you should have done was a sin committed against a perfect, holy God. Maybe that's still not enough for you. Maybe you recognize, okay, I'm a sinner, but I'm not worried about it because we're all sinners. You just said that. We're all in the same boat. And if we've all messed up, then it can't be that bad. We're all kind of on the same playing field. This leads me to point number two. The second answer to who are we reaching We're reaching people who need saving. We're reaching people who need saving. You may not see the difference between point one and point two, but I felt the need to differentiate. Between one, we're reaching sinners, and two, we're reaching people who need saving because sinners often minimize their sin in an effort to convince themselves that their condition isn't that bad. If we're all sinners, we're in good company, right? We're all in the same boat. It's like the mob mentality of they can't punish all of us, right? We can't all get in trouble. It's like speeding on the highway. If you're going with the flow of traffic, right, how can I get a ticket? But if you get that ticket and you go to try to argue against that ticket, you can't say I was going just as fast as the people around me because the truth of the matter is, but were you speeding? Yes. So the standard isn't everyone around you, right? The standard is the law. Are you guilty of breaking the law? Yes. Then it doesn't matter if everybody else is doing the same thing. You're guilty of breaking the law. This is what happens when we compare ourselves to other sinners instead of God and his standard for our lives. <clears throat> we can't say, well, everybody else is doing it. Everybody else is a sinner. Because on Judgment Day, God doesn't say, well, did you do what everybody else did? Yes, so why? You know, what's the deal? They aren't the standard. God is the standard. His law is the standard. So did you break God's law? Yes. When we start to compare ourselves to other sinners instead of God and His standard for our lives, what we've done is we've, we've shrunk our view of God and we've shrunk our view of our sin. It's too small. Our view of God is too small our view of our sin is too small. We're suppressing the truth, just like we read in Romans. The truth that God is perfectly holy... And so any sin in us is egregiously offensive to him. We are condemned to eternal punishment apart from Christ. But we act like the this is fine dog from the meme where the dog is sitting at the table. We have a picture of this. Deacon, can you put that dog up there? Sitting at the table with a cup of coffee as the place goes up in flames around him. And he says, this is fine. Uh, Now people use this humorously when things are just going crazy, and you try to act like, oh, everything's okay. Nothing, this isn't bad. But this is what we do often with our sin, right? We are headed for eternal condemnation, eternal punishment. Uh, we've egregiously offended a perfect and holy and just God, but we're like, eh, it's okay. Like, it's, it's not that bad. I'm going to be okay. We're so comfortable in our sin, we think, this is fine. The reality of our situation is that for every sinner, the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23 tells us this. And because God is so holy and our sin is so offensive, it's deserving of a punishment that we shouldn't wish on anyone, which should tell us something. Because I think often we see things, injustice, tragedy, terrible, gruesome, whatever kind of acts in the world, and we wish eternal damnation upon those people. And that's a sense of justice in us, but it's also a sense in us that doesn't realize how terrible the wrath of God is against sin. To see something that disgusts us and offends us and grieves us and horrifies us, we can't even imagine how much worse eternity apart from God is. We shouldn't wish that upon anyone. So the first thing we have to realize, or admit, is that uh, I think we all realize we're imperfect, okay, and so we have to realize we're sinners. We have to admit, okay, we're sinners. But the second part, which really awakens us to the gospel and opens us up to the grace of God, is this admission that we're sinners who need saving. It's one step to be like, okay, yes, I'm a sinner, I'm imperfect, right? Right? But then we want to kind of say, well, but I'm not as bad as so-and-so, right? I'm, I'm better off than this guy or that guy or this lady. I'm not as bad as them, so I'm probably okay. The truth is we are in need of saving. This can be difficult for people who are really doing well in the world's eyes. They don't lack or want for anything, and so the idea of needing a Savior doesn't ring true for them. Jesus encountered a man like this in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 27. It says that as he, or Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. "'And he said to him, "'Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth.' "'And Jesus, looking at him, loved him, and said to him, "'You lack one thing. "'Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me.' "'Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions.' There's almost a sense here, and I don't want to read into the text too much, but almost a sense here when it says, teacher, I've kept all of these commandments from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. It's almost this like, oh, bless your heart. Like, you, you think you're so good, you know? Uh, and God, Jesus knew. Jesus knew the state of this man's heart. Jesus knew this man was a sinner. But Jesus knew this this man's uh, his pressure point, right? His weak, his weakness, his weak spot. And so he said, "Okay, well, there's one more thing you gotta do. Since you've been perfect in all of that, just one more thing for eternal life: sell all that you have." So Jesus knows this guy's got a lot of stuff. Give it all away, right? Forsake all of that. Trade all that in for eternal treasure and company, fellowship with me. And he leaves because he had great possessions. See, this young man, he couldn't imagine trading the good treasures of this life for the ultimate treasures of eternal life with Jesus. He wasn't convinced he needed anything more than he already had. He wasn't convinced that surrendering all of himself to God was worth it. But scripture is clear. We will all die someday and we will all be judged. So if the first point is true, we're all sinners, and the second point is true, all sinners need saving, we're in serious trouble. We're all sinners, and we all need saving. But praise God that there's a third point to this message. We're reaching people who can trust in God's promised salvation. We're reaching sinners, we're reaching people who need salvation, and we're reaching people who can trust in God's promised salvation. It's a really glum outlook that the first two points show us. We're all sinners, we're all condemned. But let's jump back into Genesis 3 for a look at the proto-evangelion, which is just a Latin phrase that means first gospel. The first gospel is called uh, this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, because it's the first promise of a Messiah or victory over the enemy. Genesis 3:15. God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Speaking to the enemy. Speaking to Satan. God promised victory over the enemy. And he covered Adam and Eve's sin way back in the garden. Now they had covered themselves with leaves. But if you look at what God covered them with, it says he covered them with skins. Animal skins. Meaning something had to give its life and shed its blood in order to cover their sin and shame. This, of course, is a foreshadowing or a type that preceded Jesus. As when he came to make good on God's promise, he also lays down his life and sheds his blood to cover our sin. Hebrews 9.22 reminds us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So Jesus is this promised Messiah, this promised victor that we read about way back in Genesis 3.15. And he came to save sinners. He lived a perfect life with no sin, so he isn't condemned like us. He has no sin nature like us. He laid down his life, he took the punishment for us, and when we trust in him, we receive his righteousness. Listen to this promise from Romans 8 to those who trust in Jesus by faith. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Sinners who have fallen short, messed up, rebelled, disobeyed. Sinners who need saving because we're condemned to eternity apart from God in punishment. These very sinners can find new life in Jesus and avoid the wrath and condemnation that we've earned destined for hell apart from god condemnation punishment torment wrath but in christ there is no condemnation not like there's a little bit like you still got a, a little, no no condemnation this is what god has promised us this is what god has sent to us in jesus this is the good news that sinners need to hear so who are we reaching Sinners, sinners who need saving, sinners who can be saved by grace through faith by trusting in the person and work of Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you again for today. Thank you for the amazing truth of your word as we see, as we can connect um, all the way back in Genesis, the beginning, the fall, where things went, uh, things went wrong and yet, you are right there with a promise of salvation, a promise of redemption, a promise of hope for sinners. And so, while we have this ugly reality, this truth that we are all uh, sinners separated from you in our rebellion and our disobedience, we have, on the other hand, this promise from you, the always faithful God, that you will send and have sent a Savior. So as we think about ourselves in relation to you, God, remind us all the time that it's only because of your grace that we are no longer under condemnation. Nothing we've done, nothing we've earned or deserved, just your grace. And that same grace is the message that we carry as we consider who we're reaching. We're reaching sinners who need a Savior just like we were before we trusted in Jesus. God, encourage us with this message, embolden us with this message, that we might share it and extend your grace to others. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we do uh, our next song, I wanted to include a practical step for us. Um, We've mentioned this before, maybe been, I don't know, a year or two since we talked about it. Uh, but if you're wondering who you're reaching specifically in, on your street, in your neighborhood, and you want to pray for those people by name, maybe you want a systematic way to kind of track that, um, there's something called blesseveryhome.com, blesseveryhome.com. It's a website, they have an app, uh, and what it does, as I've mentioned before, is it will generate a list of your neighbors based on just property records and tell you um, who lives where so that you can be praying for those people. Um, as you pray to, to encounter them and share Jesus with them. It will email you um, as often as you would like it to, uh, daily or once a week. I think those are the two ends of the spectrum there. Uh, as much as five times a week or as little as one time a week with the list of names to pray for. Uh, and then you can track that on the website or on the app and say, you know, prayed for this person or this, or this person. Uh, you can make notes. If it's, hey, I got to talk to so-and-so today, Um, if you get to share Jesus with them, you can track that. And so it has, uh, it tracks your prayers, your shares, which is sharing the gospel, your cares, uh, which is serving them or blessing them. If you got to do something and serve your neighbor in some way, you can track that for yourself and just kind of keep that in front of you. Uh, And then if someone trusts in Jesus for salvation and comes to faith, um, it's called discipled. That home has been discipled. Um, Now you may that's not a full definition of discipling someone, uh, but what I think they're saying is you've gone from uh, an unbeliever to now a disciple of Jesus, and so you can kind of uh, mark that progress on the app or the website, blesseveryhome.com, and so it's just a great way to be reminding um, the names around us and who to pray for uh, around us.